Anne Speckhard was thriving in her private counseling and research practice in the Washington, D.C. area when her husband was named U.S. Ambassador to Belarus. It threw a curveball into her clinical work and career trajectory. Speckhard got involved in a variety of security-related research projects, and she suddenly found herself in the unusual position of talking to terrorists. When I went into Palestine was the first time I went in and just announced myself. I was very honest about what I wanted. And people told me would-be suicide terrorists are never going to talk to you. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. I'm joined now by Anne Speckhard, Director of the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism, or ICSVE. Speckhard is one of the few American national security scholars with substantive access to terrorist groups. She has interviewed and debriefed more than 700 terrorists and their family members and supporters, including in Western Europe, the Balkans, Central Asia, the former Soviet Union, and the Middle East. Speckhard has used many of those interviews to build the Breaking the ISIS Brand counter-narrative project. This unique project consists of counter-narrative videos that have been used in more than 125 Facebook anti-terrorism campaigns globally with the goal of deterring terrorist recruiting. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chitra. Glad to be here. What was it like to uproot yourself from your practice and to go off to Belarus with your husband, Dan, as he launched his diplomatic career? Well, Daniel and I decided to see it as an adventure, but it was uh, very disorienting because um, I'm someone that puts my roots down deeply and we had three kids. So I had to close my practice and become entirely dependent upon him. And uh, that was not something I'd ever done before. You're fiercely independent, so that must have been even more difficult. It was difficult. And also we were moving um, on the other side of what I thought of as the Iron Curtain. I'm long, old enough that I remember the Iron Curtain. And it was strange to think, you know, when we had the Cold War, we had all these targets and Minsk was one of them where we were going to live in a in a city that would be targeted by our um, missiles if there ever was an outbreak of nuclear war. And, you know, most people don't accompany their husbands on diplomatic missions and end up talking to terrorists. Tell me how that first began to evolve in Belarus. Well, it didn't happen in Belarus. In Belarus, I was uh, doing research. Uh, so I talked to Chernobyl liquidators about the uh, trauma and post-traumatic stress that they had, which was an interesting variant because it was an invisible stressor, a lot like coronavirus is now. And I also worked with Holocaust survivors. So I was uh, building myself much more as a researcher than a therapist. But then we moved to Brussels, and that's when I became involved in talking to terrorists because I was asked by NATO if I would um, look at the intersection between religion and terrorism. And this is pre-9-11, so at that time you could read all the books and articles about religion and terrorism. It was a very small body of literature. And so how did that evolve into talking to terrorists, that work that you were doing on religion and terrorism? Well, first uh, 9-11 happened. And uh, at first the embassy told all of us to stay home. And then they militarized all the workplaces. And 
Al-Qaeda named NATO as its next target. They even said it would happen in October, which was only a month away. So a lot of the diplomats were having stress reactions and the expats were having stress reactions. So the embassy asked me if I would run uh, stress debriefings, which I did. And then I, I studied the reactions of people and how they did in response to the stress debriefings. So when a year later, Nordost happened in Russia, I contacted my colleague, a Russian speaker, who was the top person on post-traumatic stress and volunteered to help her as well. So I ended up going to Moscow and that started this whole thing of, um, we ended up um, looking at the suicide bombers families, the bombers that had gone into the uh, theater and talking to the hostages who had sat right next to them and talked to them while they were in an activated state. And think about it, no other researcher has ever studied a terrorist that's wearing a bomb belt, you know, sat down and asked him research questions. But these hostages had spent three days side by side with them and asked them all kinds of questions. So we captured secondary interviews from that, and it took off from there. For people who don't remember the Moscow theater hostage crisis, tell us just a little bit about that and who these terrorists were and, and who the hostages were. There were 800 uh, theater goers. They were families because in Russia, um, theater is often attended by parents and children. And the hostage takers were from the Chechen rebel terrorists. And uh, they took over the theater and they threatened to, to kill everyone. And they put bombs all around, they had guns. But what ultimately happened was the Russians uh, pumped gas into the theater and they didn't, uh, tell the authorities, the health authorities, what the gas was. So most of the hostages died from the rescue, which was really sad. And, um, but anyway, that kicked off my talking to terrorists because um, we got a Chechen colleague involved. She went back to Chechnya and talked to the family members. I talked to the hostages. And then when I went back to Brussels, I was teaching at the university and I had a student who admitted to me that, admitted to the whole class, that he had been in uh, Jerusalem when the bombing of Hebrew U happened. He was there for lunch and um, had a nice lunch, argued with an Israeli soldier, agreed to disagree, walked out, and the place exploded. And he processed this the whole semester in class. I offered to see him privately, but he didn't want to. And then he ended up talking me into going into Palestine to talk to Palestinians. And um, it just kept growing and growing. And at this point, I've talked to about 800 terrorists. And so you ended up taking a bunch of trips to the West Bank and Gaza. I went all through the West Bank. I talked to people that were sending suicide bombers, people that um, wanted to be sent to suicide bombers, family members of people who had uh, bombed themselves, uh, terrorist leaders. Um, it was amazing. And I also went in Gaza just once, but all through Gaza and did the same thing. Uh, the Israelis finally um, made it quite clear to me that they didn't want me to continue this research. But I continued in other places. I went into the Casablanca slums and talked to the friends of the suicide bombers there about, and I was always looking for literally 
what makes a suicide bomber tick? Uh, why do they get into it? How do they get on the terrorist trajectory? And since I'm a psychologist, I wanted to know, could it have been prevented or can we take them back off of it? And what's it like to, to uh, you make it sound almost casual, like, oh, I went to Casablanca, I went to the West Bank, I went to Gaza. Well, the Israelis said, stop your research. But what, were you ever in danger? What, what's it like to actually just wander around and talk to people that most people can't imagine talking to? How do you do it? It is kind of strange. When I went into Palestine was the first time I went in and just announced myself. I was very honest about what I wanted. And people told me, would-be suicide terrorists are never going to talk to you. But then the first day that I got uh, interviews with kids that had been in prison, a lot of um, Palestinian youth are imprisoned um, during their late high school, college years um, for doing some kind of dissident activity. And um, I ended up talking to a group of kids and interviewing them. And one of them told me about a riot in the prison and he showed me his necklace which was a martyr's necklace of his friend who had been killed and i asked him do you ever think of revenging have you ever thought of um uh joining up as a suicide bomber and it, it just was i'm a therapist so you know i just go to the next question as it proceeds and it just seemed like the natural question to ask i wasn't suggesting anything and he very quickly answered, I prefer not to answer. And I answered as quick as him, well, you just did. And then we stared at each other in horror. And um, I, I was really horrified to have in front of me someone that was thinking about doing a suicide mission. And, um, but at the same time, I was really curious. So I said, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm trying to understand. Can you explain to me your thought process? I mean, I understand some of it but can you explain why you would give your life in such a horrific way? And um, he opened up and told me everything. But then I had this terrible dilemma and I decided never again of if you interview someone out in the field, if you interview them in prison, okay, but out in the field, then what is your moral obligation? You've opened this person up to get to admit to you a crime that's about to happen. Uh, is your obligation to the potential victims or to confidentiality? So I decided that I wasn't going to proceed that way anymore. And thankfully, he was arrested, not because I turned him in, but by others. And the, and the people that were going to send him were also arrested. So that was a good thing. But so there were moral dilemmas in the work. And there were also two times in um, West Bank once and in Gaza once where it was discussed whether I would be held as a hostage. Palestinians up to then had not kept Americans hostage. Um, so I wasn't real worried about that. But I had been in places where they were shooting. Um, but honestly, when I was in West Bank, I was more afraid of the Israeli soldiers because they generally um, viewed me as a Palestinian and I saw how the Palestinians were treated and they had no idea that I was an American. As soon as they realized it, they always backed off. But many times on uh, small vehicles and so on, I'd be dragged off of them and, you know, told to sit here and treated, you know, pretty disrespectfully until I showed my American passport. But um, two times when I was in interviews, once, once I was in a safe house in Gaza, 
and these big bearded guys, they were eating chicken at the time because we were taking a lunch break and the chicken fat was dripping in their beards and they were looking at me and they said, why did you wear a headscarf? Are you Muslim? And I said, no, I wore it out of respect for you. I was told that that would be the right thing to do, but no, I'm, I'm Christian. And then they said, oh, well, that was good. And, um, and then they said, did you consider that we might keep you? No one knows where you are, because I had agreed to go to their safe house. They drove me. And I felt a moment of horror. And uh, this Ken Reedy, the student that was with me who had been in the suicide bombing, said he was thinking, how many of these guys can I take? And they were big, strong guys, and they had guns. And uh, I just felt horror, but I answered quickly, no, I didn't think you'd ever do that because I know your ethic of hospitality and your brother sent me to you from Brussels. So no, I, I didn't think you would ever violate something like that. And again, it kind of grunted out approval, like, oh, oh, good answer. And I saw something switch, like they were considering it and then they decided not to do it. And in the other situation, when I was in West Bank, I was with um, the... PFLP and their leader was in um, prison and they were discussing when I went to the bathroom my uh, colleague told me that they were discussing why don't we take her as hostage and try to um, break him out of jail by trading her so when I came back my colleague told me that and I just laughed and I said oh well then I can stay and um, do more interviews um, while you see if this works or not but my mind was kind of racing to think, is this serious? And my colleague said, they're serious, you know, stop laughing. And then I said, come on, guys, uh, your leader is so important. And I'm a woman. That, do you think the Israelis would ever trade your leader for me? It's just going to be a bloodbath. And um, they sat and thought about it for a few minutes. And then uh, I was lucky. I, you know, the discrimination against women worked in my behalf on my behalf in that instance. <laughs> they were like, yeah, you're right, you're right. Then nobody would ever trade you for our leader. Oh, that's funny. Um, you know, I've, uh, were you ever worried or was, was your husband Daniel ever worried that, you know, after all, he was, uh, you know, a U.S. diplomat and if something happened to you or they could hold you if they figured out that you were married to him. I remember talking to Daniel once about it and he says, Anne does what Anne does, you know, but <laughs> I wonder <laughs> what were the sensitivities and, and how did you all deal with it? Well, I think from Dan's point of view, he was really busy with his own career and just happy that I was doing something that um, that I was happy with, you know, because he had uprooted me. And uh, I, I think he was a bit oblivious, to be honest, but the embassy wasn't. So he had the title of U.S. ambassador when we were um, posted to NATO. And um, when I went into Gaza, um, the Israelis stopped me on the way out because that's the one place at that time where they registered you by your passport when you went in. And when I came out the next day, um, I think it was about 48 hours, they said, um, we understand that you've been talking to terrorists and um, we want to know everyone you've talked to. And you can't go into the West Bank or Gaza admitting that you're going for those purposes. So when I landed in Israel, I always said I was a Holocaust scholar, which was true. I am a Holocaust scholar. 
And, um, and I just didn't mention the rest. So I stuck with my line and I said, I'm a Holocaust scholar. Uh, we just took a break. Uh, Ken wanted to see Gaza, which was true. Ken wanted to see Gaza. And uh, they kept insisting and we stayed there for about six hours. But what happened that I didn't know, and I found out from Daniel, because he told me when I finally got out of that checkpoint, um, we missed our plane to go home the next day, and because uh, the Israelis held us, and they said, uh, we're putting you up in a hotel, so no prison or anything like that. And they were very uh, velvet gloves. But when I called Daniel to tell him I'm not coming home, I'm in a hotel, I'm on the beach, and I'm not really sure what's happening, but I think I'll be home tomorrow. He said, oh, well, the flatfooters were here this morning. And I said, what? And he said, um, FBI and someone else. And he said they were asking, uh, did I know where you were? And I actually started my book talking to terrorists with this question. Um, Mr. Ambassador, do you know where your wife is? And he said, yes, she's in Israel. And they laughed and they said, no, she's not in Israel. She was in Gaza and she was talking to Hamas. And he said, oh, yes, yes. And um, they said, uh, is she pulling a Patty Hearst? And for your uh, listeners who don't know who Patty Hearst is, she was kidnapped by terrorists and eventually um, uh, joined their movement, but after being raped and drugged and other things. And uh, Dan said, no, no, no. And he ran upstairs and got a paper and my business card from Georgetown. And he said, my wife studies terrorists. This is what she does. And I said, well, have her come into the embassy when she gets back. So I did. And the diplomatic security asked me to stop doing my work. And I, I found that very sexist, honestly. You know, uh, why can't spouses have careers? And um, I said, no, I wasn't going to stop my work. And they said, well, you'd make a perfect hostage being married to Daniel. And I said, well, I'm going places where I don't think that I will be held hostage. Um, although, as I told you, it had been discussed. And um, we came to an agreement that I would tell them where I was going, but they would not interfere. And did that work? Well, it was funny because the diplomatic security guy said, here's the deal I want to have when we argued and argued about it. Um, I just want to know that you're safe. So I can't tell you classified information, but I can tell you if you tell me about an upcoming trip, like I told him when I was going to Casablanca, I can tell you if we're getting signals that they know a U.S. ambassador's wife is coming and they're waiting for you. So I can tell you don't go, but I can't tell you why. So you just have to trust me if I ever tell you don't go. But the funny thing was, we did have some trouble in Casablanca. I don't remember exactly what it was. And I asked the embassy in, in uh, Rabat, uh, did they know that I was going to be there? And I said, we never, we've never heard of you. So the diplomatic security guy hadn't reached out. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy. I don't know. But I, I, have, I have been stopped. I was stopped when, I, um, when Dan was ambassador in Greece. Um, I was stopped from going to Lebanon, which I found very irritating by the regional security officer. And I decided to respect it because I didn't want to get in a big power struggle with Dan's position at that time.
But did you realize the sensitivity of it? I know you were irritated by it, but do you ever sort of wonder, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing? Of course. But I also think um, all of us have our careers. And if our spouses become ambassadors, congressmen, whatever they become, does that mean we end our careers? I don't think so. So where did you go from there, from, from uh, the West Bank and Gaza? What was your next step in your evolution as a, a uh, student of terrorists? Well, I went and interviewed the Friends of the Casablanca Bombers. Um, I also went in Lebanon and uh, uh, talked to Hezbollah. And interestingly, when I talked to Hezbollah, they told me at that point, Dan was in Iraq. And they said, we need to know your husband's full name and we need to know his career. And I shared it with them. And I knew they were planning to come and pick me up. And I didn't sleep real well the night before because I had heard stories of people having uh, uh, bags put over their head and put in the trunk of the car when they get picked up by Hezbollah. But my host in Lebanon said, he was Christian and he was um, well known in the area. And he said, they won't mess with you because of me, because of our village, uh, because they would be taking on a whole local area if they did. But you should think really carefully about this. And when I talked to them, they said, listen, we'll allow you, we respect what you're doing. We'll allow you to talk to all our um, would be suicide bombers, but, um, we can't protect you from Al-Qaeda. And they called Al-Qaeda terrorists. They said, we're not terrorists, which I always found ironic. But um, given that Dan was in Iraq at that point, I did think it was too sensitive and uh, that I could very easily end up on a beheading video because of his position. So then it was a, a serious safety concern. Before that, I hadn't felt like it was. So I, st I stopped with Hezbollah, but then the USDOD invited me to come into Iraq. And um, I think I shocked the military a little bit when they were asking me, they said, do you understand what a de-radicalization program is? And I said, yeah, I've studied them. And they said, could you help us put one together? And they knew at that point that I'd interviewed about 400 terrorists at that point. And I said, yes, I'd be happy to do that. Um, and I guess if I come to Baghdad, I could see my lover. And uh, I was just teasing. I thought they for sure knew who Daniel was. They had no idea. So they invited me on my own merits, which was uh, a nice thing. And uh, I ended up working in Camp Cropper and Camp Buka, putting together uh, what became the detainee rehabilitation program. And my part was the psychological and Islamic challenge parts. What did you have to do? What was the, what was it about? And uh, and and were you were you um, in visiting the prisons too? Or yeah, definitely. We were. The whole idea was the uh, U.S. forces had twenty three thousand prisoners, and they were understanding that the Al Qaeda guys mainly were teaching uh, anybody that they were imprisoned with how to make bombs, how to make IEDs. Um, convincing them on the martyrdom and jihad ideology, and that by picking people up and throwing them in prisons, they were actually creating a training camp for the terrorists, which terrorists have told me all along. They told me the same thing in Palestine, that prison was the best uh, uh, training grounds, especially for youth. So 
um, General Garner and then later General Stone decided that they wanted to have some kind of de-radicalization program, but they didn't know how to do it. So I, I helped design it for them. And, but what happened was, and I interviewed actual terrorists in the prison to make sure that it would fit. And I was confident that it would. And I also um, trained the Islamic scholars that were going to um, uh, speak against the Al-Qaeda ideology and the psychologists and social workers who were going to work and created this whole protocol. But at the time, the politics shifted quite dramatically in Iraq and we had the awakening movement. So things turned out a little bit different than what I had expected. But it was an interesting, interesting job, that's for sure. And was there a moment when you were visiting the prison that it kind of struck home to you where you were and what you were doing? To be honest, I was very afraid to go into Iraq. Um, I tried not to watch the news when Daniel was there. Uh, the family stayed in Brussels, and he went and ended up spending two years in Iraq running the reconstruction and then becoming the deputy ambassador to Zal Khalazad. And they were shooting down helicopters, and Dan was traveling in helicopters all the time. There were IEDs everywhere. And I just didn't watch the news. I just blanked it out because I didn't want to be in a fear state all the time about him. So when the military asked me to come, I told them I didn't want to travel by uh, uh, roads because I was really worried about the IEDs, although then they started shooting the helicopters too. And uh, But when I was taken to both the Crapper prison and the Buka prison, the prison administrator showed me this huge wall of... Um, knives, shanks, I guess they call them, uh, which were pieces of metal that the prisoners had taken and sharpened to be knives. And there must have been 100, 200 of them uh, fixed on this, uh, on this wall. And it was a demonstration of, you know, don't think you're safe in here. So I was interviewing prisoners face to face, and there was always a guard standing there. And he had a stun gun. But really, if a prisoner had a shank, I think he could um, cut my uh, throat or stab me in my organs in a way that would kill me quite quickly, stun gun or no, no stun gun. So I was very aware of that. And every time I traveled into Iraq, I went back and forth. I didn't live in Iraq because we had three kids that were still in Brussels. Um, but every time I went to do my work, I wondered if I'd be in an IED attack, if I'd lose my legs or my arms or my eyesight. But what gave me the courage to do it was to look at my kids and think, if somebody doesn't rehabilitate these terrorists, there's too many of them and they're gonna spread a movement and it's gonna come back to places like where I'm living right now, Brussels, and um, uh, my kids could be killed. This is work that has to be done. And boy, was I right, because that's exactly what happened, and we had ISIS later. So then how did you begin to study ISIS? Well, um, at the point when I studied ISIS, I'd been out of it for a little while. I had stopped doing interviews out in the field, but um, I ended up talking to State Department, and they asked me, would you be able to get the interviews that you've done, could you get them on video? Could you go back and interview the same people? Or, you know, could you get terrorists to tell their story and then 
together could we shape it into something that we could um, use to counter message against terrorists. And this is in the height of when ISIS was um, drawing, well, they ended up drawing 45,000 people into Syria and Iraq from a hundred different countries. So I said, I think the most um, effective thing would be to get ISIS on video, but I really doubt that I could do that and I'll be the one that ends up on a video and it'll be a big batting video. But sure, I could get other terrorists. And I sat and thought about it for a long time. They pulled the funding together and I just got lucky. I met a police um, chief from uh, Urfa in Turkey who told me that he probably could get me access to uh, ISIS defectors in the south of Turkey. So we started with that. We got our first 32 ISIS interviews from people that had, that had run away from, uh, from ISIS. They were all Syrians and they told amazing stories. Like one of them, he was just a kid and he was about ready to be sent on a suicide mission and he was allowed leave to go see his family and he very proudly told his parents that he was uh, next in line to uh, drive a suicide vehicle. And they said, no, you'll be going to your uncle in Turkey. And he said it took him a year to get out of the mindset. And we talked to all kinds of people like this, but then it continued and I ended up getting into the prisons in Iraq, the prisons in Albania, prisons in Kosovo, and prisons in SDF territory, and also talking to defectors and returnees in Europe and the Balkans who had just come back on their own, some of them that spent prison time and others that didn't. And um, our sample is now 239. Almost all of them are on video and all of them are long interviews. I, I take a long time. I ask them, you know, about their previous history, who they were before they even heard of ISIS, uh, how they heard of ISIS, what motivated them to travel, how they traveled, what happened when they got there, what were their experiences in ISIS, did they take military training, did they take Sharia training, uh, what did they like, what did they hate, uh, if they got disillusioned, did they try to escape, what happened, uh, what was their job, and what ultimately happened to them? You know, were they a returnee, a defector? Uh, am I interviewing them in prison? And how do they feel about ISIS now? Which is actually the crux of our project, because the ones that are willing to denounce ISIS, I ask them, would you give advice for someone else? Is, is this group Islamic? And then they'll say all kinds of things like how it doesn't follow Islam, uh, how it's corrupt, how it's brutal. And I asked their permission at the end of the interview, and at the beginning, of course, um, can I use pieces of your video to create a counter-narrative to counter-message against ISIS? And the ones that hate ISIS are like, sure, of course. And um, some of them allow me to use their face and their real name, and others say, please blur my face and disguise my identity. But at this point, we've made 180 short video clips from these uh, ISIS insiders denouncing the group. And what do these videos look like and where do they air? What's the impact? Okay, well, a lot of them are on our website, which is International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism, ICSVE. And um, they're also on our ICSVE YouTube channel. And I should say they're also subtitled in the 27 languages that ISIS recruits in. So they're not just limited to English subtitles. And our 
first vision was just to put them on YouTube and see what happens. And also, you know, did other people pick them up and campaign with them? But later, we decided to campaign with them ourselves on Facebook. And I think we've run 130 campaigns on Facebook now. Facebook has partnered with us. So sometimes we can identify what we call a special audience and hyper-target. And these are people that have been influenced by uh, an ISIS propagandist. So we go to the same people with our videos and uh, hope they watch it. And we're able by the Facebook metrics to see if they watched it, how long they watched it, and also to read all their comments and if they shared it with others. And sometimes we find our videos start a whole discussion among uh, Facebook and Instagram users. And uh, so we keep learning more and more about how to campaign with these and how to send them out. But we're basically aiming for the same audience that ISIS is aiming for. And our goal, just like Silicon Valley, is to be a disruptor, to disrupt ISIS's online and face-to-face -face recruitment. And I guess Facebook cares because the, its platform, both its uh, Facebook platform and Instagram platform, is being used for this purpose. It's still being used. Um, they have a takedown policy, and they also uh, support tech against uh, terrorism. So they've done really good work to try to take um, terrorist propagandists down, but they still, especially in foreign languages, uh, pop up. And we found them on Instagram just very recently, uh, raising money to try to uh, break female prisoners out of Al Hol uh, terrorist camp in Syria. And and you've said that you try to make it look and f look and sound and feel like a radical video to suck people in to watching long enough to get some of that messaging, right? Yeah, our whole um, when we made our first video, we made it of the kid that I told you about earlier, and um, we decided that the beginning of the message um, we would pick the things of why they liked ISIS, why they thought it was good, and we realized basically we have a talking head and if he says, please blur my face, and in this case he wore a scarf over his face to hide his identity, you don't have a face, so you don't have any facial expressions, you just have a voice. And um, we thought, well, what would we use to illustrate what he's talking about? And we realized ISIS filmed everything they did. So they had filmed a kid that, um, the first child that uh, did a beheading, and he was forced to do a beheading. So we used ISIS's film and, and put it in as our B-roll. So as he's talking, you're seeing this kid getting ready with a knife in his hand to do a beheading. Of course, we don't show the actual beheading, but we show what they filmed of the kid's expression on his face, which looks horrified, and the knife in his hand. So it makes it very real. And then, um, and we go back and forth between different images from ISIS and then the picture of this uh, kid with a scarf on his face talking so that you, you know that this is a real person talking. And um, when we pick the thumbnail, we always pick it from the ISIS material. And we pick a name that's ambiguous. So in this case, we called it the glorious cubs of the caliphate, which could be pro-ISIS, right? Yeah, either way, right? Depending on how they want to see it. Yeah, yeah. So we've actually experimented on Facebook um, where we followed people that were 
propagandists. This was before they were all taken down. And um, we friended them with a, a fake profile. And then we tagged them with this video and another one. And they look so authentically ISIS that they just shared them with their whole networks. And then later when someone watched it, and it got back to them that this was an anti-ISIS one. They apologized. And uh, <laughs> we thought it was kind of funny that we were getting ISIS themselves to share our videos. That's very funny. Um, and how many people do you think you've reached? And, and what's been Facebook's response to sort of these efforts? Facebook's very proud to be partnered with us. And we're proud to be partnered with them as well. And uh, we've reached millions. Um, in one of our campaigns in Iraq, we had, I think it was a million and a quarter just for one video. So we've done 130 of these campaigns. Some of them get huge numbers, some less. And we're experimenting, trying to figure out why and how to get to people. We do understand now in Europe, probably we have to work on Instagram, which means that our videos have to be only one minute long. So we've made shortened versions. And um, in other places, Facebook is more dominant, but it's it's gone out to millions. And you're also looking at uh, working with, I guess, with some uh, foreign governments on repatriation and rehabilitation of ISIS foreign fighters and their wives and children. What's that effort looking like? Well, that's really interesting. When I first went into Syria, I, I got interested I, you know, I wasn't planning to step my foot ever into Syria. I thought going to Iraq was scary enough. And um, um, I was asked to help on Samantha Al-Hassani's case. Her sister was trying to get the children back. So there were four American children. Samantha Al-Hassani is an American that joined ISIS. And she was in Camp Roche, and she had two children, uh, one who had been forced into an ISIS film. And... Um, two that were had been born in Raqqa. And the sister was trying to get the two youngest home. And it, it was a really interesting case because the State Department stance on it was to treat it like a divorce case and that she had the right to take her children anywhere. My view on it, which Justice Department later weighed in and agreed with me, was that to take your child to a terrorist group and to take them to Raqqa is the sign of a neglectful if not abusive parent and that the U.S. had the right to temporarily suspend her parental rights and, and act uh, protectively for the children. Because what I argued was we sent the Navy SEALs to rescue James Foley. Why wouldn't we send soldiers that were driving every day past Camp Roche to pick up these four kids and uh, bring them to Erbil and put them on a plane back to their grandparents and their uh, their extended family. And uh, uh, State Department uh, eventually got on the phone with Justice and me and said, oh yeah, that is another point of view. And she was brought home. Uh, I, was, I wasn't arguing for Samantha to be brought home um, at that time. But anyway, with that coloring my view, when I first went into Syria and first made interviews in Camp Rouge with ISIS mothers, there were all these little kids. And I, you know, had this in my mind that the kids need to go home. They were born into ISIS or they were brought into ISIS, but it wasn't by their own choice. And they're certainly not ISIS members, but they're, they're being punished. They're treated as prisoners. And so I asked the 
detainees that I interviewed at the end of the interview, do you want to go home? Which they all said yes. Um, have you spoken with your country authorities yet? Some said no. And would you like me to share the copy of your notes, because I take verbatim notes, with your country's justice ministry? And everyone said yes. So I started sharing notes with European justice ministries, and um, it ended up particularly because there was a German sleeper cell that the Germans got interested in, uh, included it. He was described in one of my interviews, and they were very keen to catch him back in Germany, that I worked extensively with the Germans on 21 cases. And I think one or two of the women, no, two of the women that we worked on are now repatriated. But the rest, they're just, they've prepared well because we've gone through these notes together. And of course, they've done all their other work of policing and investigating, uh, that they're readying for if they come home, and if the politicians decide that they will repatriate, that they can prosecute, put them in prison if need be. And then hopefully, they'll be put in rehabilitation programs at some point and come out uh, not dangerous, we hope. How, how does the U.S. government uh, feel about your work? You clearly are collecting huge amounts of data and interviews, and there's a richness of material there. Uh, and you've worked with foreign governments. You work with European governments. Um, how is it being used, if at all, by the U.S. in terms of security efforts? Well, I, I coordinated with the U.S. State Department, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey's office, quite a bit. Um, when we started working in Syria with the STF and offering to the Europeans to um, give the notes on behalf of repatriations. And also when I started working with the Germans, the FBI got involved. So they are always, there's one particular guy that's from the FBI task force that's always present when I'm sharing the notes. And um, which is nice, and, you know, it's good to have the, the U.S. protective in a sense. Um, but I went in to talk to Jeffrey's office because I wanted to make sure that what I was working on was uh, in line with the U.S. goals, and if it wasn't, um, how we could deconflict. But they said this is totally in line with what we're doing, and we're pushing really hard for the Europeans to take their ISIS prisoners back from SDF territory. But for the main part, they're refusing because there's all kinds of complications. I mean, they're worried that that they won't be able to prosecute. They'll go free on the streets. That they'll uh, propagate in the prisons if they are prosecuted. That they'll get out of prison and still be dangerous, which are all legitimate security concerns. So. Uh, Ambassador Jeffrey's office is very aware of what we do. Um, I believe they're supportive in the main. And I have also coordinated with the CVE coordinator um, for the EU. And the EU doesn't dictate to the member states what they must do, but um, they're supportive of what we're doing as well. And then we also coordinate with the DOD, the US DOD, um, all the CENTCOM, PACOM, the rest of them have counter messaging. So they have huge centers. I mean, we're just a, a little think tank, but they have huge centers where they have all these operators that all day long uh, follow Twitter, Telegram, uh, WhatsApp. Uh, you know, it's, it's classified, so I don't know the exact uh, things that they do. But 
they follow all day long and try to catch terrorists and also uh, counter message to them. So recently I went to Tampa and showed them our project and said, you know, you're welcome to use our videos when you're counter messaging. I'd prefer that they didn't get associated with the US military per se, but you know, these are covert guys anyway. And um, I think they're really important messages from actual ISIS terrorists and Al-Shabaab terrorists. We also do Al-Shabaab saying, don't join this group. Uh, trust me, I've been inside. and it's, it's not going to be good for you. Going back to that question that the FBI agent asked Daniel, the Patty Hearst question, is your wife going Patty Hearst on, you, on us? Do you ever worry that being in such close proximity to terrorists and hearing their propaganda day in and day out that you might be vulnerable? Oh, I'm never worried that I'd become a terrorist, but um, people have asked me, are you sympathetic to terrorists? And I would say you cannot do a good psychological interview unless you're empathetic. So I spent an hour and a half to five hours with these people. One guy, he was ISIS Amir. I interviewed him for five hours. And he was from Morocco, so I went into great uh, detail with him about the scene in Morocco and uh, some of the repression there. And when people tell me about human rights violations and, uh, you know, being imprisoned, being tortured, being um, uh, victims of discrimination, people in Germany and uh, Belgium have told me my wife wears a niqab and I can't tell you how many times we've been spat at uh, or, you know, because of my brown skin or my Muslim religion, I can't get a job. And of course, I feel uh, sympathetic to those things and empathetic with them. They're human beings after all. And we have to understand that nobody joins a terrorist group except it meets their needs somehow. And for a lot of these people, it was a, ISIS presented themselves as a dream where Muslims can succeed, where you can get a job, where your housing is free, uh, where you'll be an important person, you'll have dignity, purpose, significance, and you'll be able to live Islam without being harassed. Of course, none of that was true, but that's what they believed. So I wouldn't say that I get sucked in. I would just say I get that confirmed over and over and over again in interviews. But at the same time, I'm talking to people that have killed, um, that have blood on their hands, and do I have any sympathy for that? None whatsoever. And, um, you know, there was, he was a minor, a kid that told me that he was forced to behead, that he was called up and they said, it's your day to behead. And he came and there were five Peshmerga soldiers. The cameras were all set up. They handed a knife to him. And he said, I knew if I didn't do it, they would kill me. So I guess as a human being, I can feel empathy for him. But I have to say, you know, there is a human spirit in all of us that can say no. And yes, you will lose your life if you say no. But um, I don't know. I mean, these are all horrible, horrible things, right? And um, do you ever worry that you inadvertently might get caught in the crosshairs of the U.S. government's anti-terrorism efforts because there are so many restrictions on being able to look at terrorist materials, to share terrorist materials, you know, and you're deep in the thicket of all this stuff. Do you ever worry about that? Don't worry about it too much. When we lived in Belgium and I was talking to terrorists, um, there was all the Patriot Act things that came out. And uh, President Bush said, 
if if an American's talking to terrorists, then I want to be able to see your phone calls and your emails. And I thought, okay, that's the end of privacy for me. But I generally am a very open person and very honest. So I was like, read all my emails, um, read my phone calls, that's fine with me. And actually I'd gotten kind of used to that with Dan being an ambassador. You can pretty much figure that other countries are trying to read your emails and uh, you know have you under surveillance. So have I lost privacy? Yes. Um, when, we, when the FBI got involved on working on the repatriations, I worried that they would try to subpoena all of our interviews, but they assured me that they wouldn't and they haven't. Uh, so that's good. Um, but yeah, you know, you always wonder when you're going through airports or when you have data, will someone come and take it, you know, a, a, in, in a government authority position. And, you know, you just do your best to encrypt things and lock things behind passwords and, um, I mean, uh, we just did a speaking event yesterday where Anthony Lloyd, uh, a journalist, told us that he interviewed Shamima, Shamima Begum and the UK government demanded that he turn over all his files and he refused and it was uh, fought in the courts and he won. And she is? He's a journalist for The, the Times. And Shamima Begum is? Uh, she was a 15-year-old that went to ISIS. You probably know the picture. There's three girls going through the Istanbul airport, and they look like they're going on a grand adventure. They're on their way to ISIS, and they were girls from a kind of swanky um, school, Bethnal Green. It's an iconic photo. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, now, with COVID, I have two questions. Do terrorists realize, given the vulnerability that the entire globe has revealed to microbes that potentially are you hearing anything about biological weapons uh, as sort of the future of uh, terrorism uh, and i guess the second question is with all of the distractions of the entire governments of the world dealing with covid does it allow you know groups like isis or new groups to start to surface because our, our heads turned elsewhere well, all of the groups, uh, the far right and uh, the Al-Qaeda, ISIS-type groups, uh, started saying when COVID came out, if you're infected, go and infect the enemy, basically. So um, the, the first one I heard of was an Egyptian ideologue who said, um, uh, who was a jihadist, uh, said, you know, you should go to the government and infect as many people as you can um, while you're um, contagious. But I think that the, uh, I study ISIS much more than the far right. I mean, I read about it, but I'm not doing interviews with the far right. And I would say in the leadership, they're pretty smart about these things. And they did uh, warn their um, followers to be careful because of COVID, because they don't want to be wiped out. But that said, we've made two interviews with scientists that were brought into ISIS. I think, yeah, they were both Iraqis. And ISIS is known for having made a call to scientists, medical people, uh, people with uh, film and uh, media uh, skills, all, all skilled people and the specific skills that they needed to join. And with the scientists, they said, um, you don't even need to come here, just on our encrypted channels, 
please help us to figure out how to make uh, weapons of mass destruction and biological weapons. So one of these scientists opened up quite a bit to us about it and told us that he was reading everything he could find in uh, scientific journals. And, you know, scientists are very proud to say what they figured out. And then he would write to ISIS and say, see this article? It tells you this extremely flammable substance and how it works and how to produce it. So you need, you know, these supplies. You, this is how you would produce it. And here's how you could use it. So maybe in the scientific journal, it had mentioned that it could be used for warfare, but it wasn't, the article wasn't about warfare, it was about polymers. And, um, but the ISIS guy would uh, feed it back to the organization. And there was a lab in Erbil that was exactly for this kind of thing. And Al-Qaeda the same, they experimented with uh, ricin and other biological agents. They uh, poisoned dogs, they had a dog, dogs in a lab, I think this was in, uh, Afghanistan or Pakistan, I'm not sure. And um, so, and they're willing to use it. Uh, Al-Qaeda made the statement of anything you use on us, we can use against you. And um, the Russians had sent poison socks to Basayev. He's a Chechen rebel leader and uh, affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Luckily, he um, hung them out where chickens were. Um, uh, around and he saw that the chickens died so he never put them on it would have killed him and uh, his deputy Hatab was sent a letter that was laced with poison which did kill him so their view is if you use it on us we can use it on you but I do think the ones that are our true scientists understand that biological weapons are very hard to control Looking back on your career, and what would you say to that uh, diplomat's wife who found herself unmoored by his move abroad and his own rising career about the journey that you've been on and these conversations you've been having with terrorists? Well, when I wrote the first book that I wrote, Talking to Terrorists, I wrote it to my old self. So I tried to think of the reader as the person that I used to be, because I grew up in the state of Wisconsin. I'd say I was a, a small town girl. And I went out into the big world and learned things that I never imagined that I would learn. And so I wrote with the idea of, you know, come with me and listen to these people for yourself, because I, you know, put a lot of their words into the book. And I'll tell you what I think, but you judge for yourself what you think. And so I, I wrote my whole book that way. And I would say if I was going to speak to anyone in that position of, you know, take life as a series of changes. And Dan and I decided when we went on a, a vacation that was too expensive for us when our kids were little, what if it's not perfect and we spent all this money on it, will we be disappointed? And we decided, let's view it as an adventure because things are supposed to go wrong on an adventure, right? And if you view it as an adventure, you probably won't be disappointed. So we repeated that when we went off to the former Soviet Union. We said, let's view this as an adventure. And I think I've kind of taken that as my motto of going through life. And we do tend to hang on to things and think this is me and this is what I should be doing. 
but probably we should go through life with our hands open and saying, you know, this is me right now, but it might change five minutes from now. I might be doing something completely different and just embrace whatever is. Have you had any what I call uh, viral insights about your life and work in the wake, wake of COVID-19, that moment of clarity that's often brought upon by a crisis? I've had rest. Um, I was traveling so much. I was traveling every other month overseas and going into conflict zones. And sometimes I'd be in Syria planning my next trip, booking my tickets with bad internet um, while I was on a trip. And I was fine with that. I'm a high energy person and I get a lot of energy from my work. I really enjoy it. And I don't do things that I don't believe in. And I'm my own boss for the most part, so that's very nice. Um, but when COVID happened and I started to evaluate, should I go on my next trip? Will I get stuck in Syria if I have a fever? Will I not be able to cross the border? If I'm in Erbil and I have a fever, will I not be able to board the plane? And, you know, all these uh, steps that I have to go. And I was also being asked to go other places. And I shut it down first myself, and then it just got shut down completely by everyone. And I, at first, was disappointed. But now I've just said, you know, embrace it. We're at home. Um, my family's here. Uh, I cook every night. Uh, I'm doing a lot of writing. And it's okay. And just be peaceful with what is right now. And I, re and I tell myself, maybe you won't travel again. Maybe you won't... Uh, you know, be out there doing what you were doing last year. But either way, I'm okay with it. And thank you so much for all of these amazing stories and insights from your most unique career path. <laughs> You're welcome. Anne Speckhard is the director of the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism, ICSVE. Speckhard is a sought-after counterterrorism expert and has consulted with NATO, the EU Commission, and EU Parliament, European and other foreign governments, and has advised U.S. congressional committees and federal agencies. Speckhard is a frequent media commentator and has written several books, including Talking to Terrorists, Bride of ISIS, Undercover Jihadi, and ISIS Defectors, Inside Stories of the Terrorist Caliphate. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.